Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Um, and we do pray all the things that Marshall just prayed, Lord, that you would help us see all of life and all of our trials and all of our successes as opportunities to grow in our affection for you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that today uh, it is not intimidating to us, but instead it is warm and welcoming and it points us to the wonderful truth of the gospel. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So this past week marked the beginning of fall. Another season in Montana has come and gone. And since last week, another season has come and gone again uh, today. And what happens is it changes things for us, right? In Montana, when fall comes, it changes uh, our seasons, changes what it is you do on Saturdays, whether you're in the stadium watching the Grizzlies or you're stuck in a blind waiting for an animal to come to your urine-soaked body. Uh, all those things change. It changes our wardrobe. We change from shorts to sweaters. And uh, already, we've changed again preparing for winter. And this week, we'll change back again to preparing for fall. And then another month, we'll change again for winter again. And then we'll change for spring. And then we'll change for summer. And then next year, the whole process is going to start all over again. It's just the cycle that God has made. Change, even naturally, is inevitable. And we know this. We know this in our own lives. Because as the seasons change, it's a reminder that we change. We change naturally in some ways. And we change intentionally in some ways. Some changes are due to what is good a new wardrobe because you have a slimmed down body, someday I'd like to have that. Or it could be changes in the negative. Maybe stairs are getting swapped out for ramps because your mobility is becoming limited for a season or maybe permanently. Change is sometimes motivated by what is good, change is sometimes motivated by what is bad, but contrary to what we often say, no one ever changes for change's sake. No one ever just changes because you want to change. You want change. Anytime we put some sort of intentional effort to mix things up, it's because we want that change to actually affect change somewhere else. Does that make sense? So in other words, we change because we hope that a new boyfriend and a new girlfriend will, you know, fix what's going on. It'll spice life up a little bit. We think a new job, a change in job might bring us peace. We think a new context might rejuvenate us. Change is beheld to change. There's something behind it that we hope it can provide for us. And there are times where we can make wonderful, wise, good changes in our life. But in those moments when we are spending our hours, and spending our time, and even small fortunes to incur these changes, we have to be sober to ask ourselves, is this expenditure, is this change able to protect us from what we want to avoid and preserve us into what we want, right? Is this change able to do what I want it to do? And it's the same debate and dilemma that the people of Israel have as they stood on the stoop of the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy in the first chapter. And here they stand looking across a river into the land that God has promised to give them, and they begin to reflect on the good and the bad. They look at all the good changes that came coming out of Egypt and the wonderful miracles that God performed to deliver them from slavery. But then they look ahead at changes that God is prescribing to them. Changes that might seem hard, changes that might seem foreign to them, changes that might seem difficult. And they have to choose 
Is this change able to do what I want? Is the change that God is prescribing able to give me what I desperately want, or do I need to change my own plans? Do I need to find a different change to get me what it is I hopefully want? And the truth is, the book of Deuteronomy that we're starting today is a book about change. Why we need it, where we can get it, and what it means for us. And so today, as we're opening up the book of Deuteronomy together, this is what we're going to see, and we're going to see it over the course of three points, but here's a statement that we're going to look at today, is that Deuteronomy is a sermon about our need and how God is going to change us. Deuteronomy is a sermon about our need and how God is going to change us. And we're going to circle back and work those three statements. It's a sermon about our need and how God is going to change us. And what I want to do this morning is uh, spend a little more time kind of giving the background to the book of Deuteronomy. Where are we in the scope of history? Where are we in the scope of Scripture? And then I want us to see how the tone of Deuteronomy chapter 1 really shapes the tone of the book as a whole. And if you have a Bible, um, these physical things that we have, you have it on your phone probably, it's going to be on the screen or in your bulletin. This is a series where I encourage you to bring um, the real live thing to church with you uh, because we're going to go through this book relatively fast, Most of the scriptures that we're going to go through are too big to actually fit in the bulletin itself. Uh, Sometimes we're going to go through multiple chapters at a time, focusing in on specific portions. And so being able to flip through your Bible, um, being able to kind of see where we're at even in the the length of it uh, is something that's important. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. Please take one home with you. Um, We'd love to help you with that. But this will be a good study to have your Bible with during it. And it's going to be really important to interact with Scripture here because we often struggle, and maybe you are intimidated yourself, as I often am, in, even in teaching it, we're intimidated of the Old Testament. We get worried. We have the Old Testament, the bigger portion of our Bible, and then we've got the New Testament, the, the latter, lesser, just by page volume portion of the Bible. And we think that anytime we encounter the Old Testament, that word legalism comes up. Maybe you've heard it Every page is ripe with legalism. We need to be careful how we read it. And so we're scared. We're intimidated. We don't know what applies to us and what doesn't apply to us. If you are a college student or if you ever have been a college student, you know the Old Testament is often the place where professors take you to to pit the Bible against God, which is never a good position to be in. God's not scared of his word. It's his word. But they take us there to show how the Bible and Christianity is outdated. It's archaic. It's inconsistent with itself. And still others, even in the friendly confines of the church, we wrestle to look at the Old Testament through the lens of anything apart from moralism, right? You go to Sunday school or VBS or you hear a sermon and the emphasis is be like David, be like Joseph, be like Moses, be like Noah. It's all just moral stories that we should try to emulate these heroes of the Old Testament. But to actually get hung up on these things and be intimidated and misunderstanding it is to miss the very beauty that God has given us in the book of Deuteronomy itself. Because just like every other book of Scripture, Deuteronomy points us to Jesus. It is so rich with the gospel of grace. In fact, outside of Psalm and Isaiah, this book of Deuteronomy is the most quoted book in the New Testament. And this is the book that Jesus himself quotes more than any other book in Jesus' life and ministry and teaching. And even if you're someone in here who doesn't yet identify with Christianity, you haven't yet seen Jesus as the one who saves us from sin and put your trust in him, this book wrestles with the present questions that our culture is wrestling with. It talks about morality. It talks about social justice. It talks about how we move from being self-conscious to being self-confident. 
Having a grasp on the book of Deuteronomy allows us to have a firm grasp not only of the gospel, but of the reality of life anywhere and everywhere. But even though the book of Deuteronomy doesn't use the word Jesus, unless we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we won't be able to see anything about the gospel or anything about our life. Jesus is at the center of this book. And so Deuteronomy is a book that's the last book of what's called the Pentateuch, which is a word to just intimidate people. All it means is the first five books of the Bible, they're written by Moses, and even though they are individual books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they all tell one story, one cohesive story that Moses is using to basically inform Israel of how they were called by God, how they got to where they were, and how God was going to carry them forward. It helped them understand the God who called them, and it helps us understand the God who has called us. And so, to kind of get to where we are in Deuteronomy, we have to, you don't jump into Lord of the Rings reading Return of the King, you start with the Fellowship of the Ring, or go back further to the Hobbit, or if you're super nerdy, you start with the Similarian. And here, we start in Genesis. And in Genesis, you see God creating the world, he created the Garden of Eden, he created Adam and Eve, he had his people in his place, and he was there in his presence. He was perfect. But as quickly as things were made perfect, rebellion ensued. Adam and Eve disbelieved God. God's people got removed from God's place. They got kicked out of the garden, and they were removed from God's presence. And as you read Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, those three Ps, God's people, God's place, and God's presence, are really important to understand. So you always ask yourself, where are are God's people here? Where is God's presence? And where is God's place? And so God kicks them out and what you see is things don't get better. There's more rebellion. There's a global flood. There's more sin. Things aren't really progressing in a positive direction. And then in Genesis chapter 12, you meet a man named Abram, who will go on to be called Abraham. And Abram set out in what's modern-day Iraq area, and he was going to travel all the way to the Mediterranean. He set out to do that very deliberately. And on his way, he got kind of He lost his zeal, lost his desire to go anywhere, wandered around for a little bit, and ultimately settled far short of where he wanted to go and was kind of content with his life. But then God finds this desert wanderer in Genesis chapter 12, and look at what he says to him. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's God who has removed his people from his place and withdrawn his presence because they're sinful and they're broken. And here in Genesis chapter 12, something amazing happens in the scope of history. God finds, though he is not required to, Though he's not compelled to by any other reason, he finds a desert wanderer who is stuck in the middle of nowhere, and he says, with you, I am going to recreate the people that I lost at Eden. I am going to overcome the effects of the fall, and you saw it there. You are going to be my people. I am going to bring your God, to be your God. I'm going to bring you to my place. Everything that was broken in Genesis has now promised to be redeemed already in Genesis chapter 12. God's good at doing what he has always planned to do. And what I love about this story of Abraham is you see at the end of chapter 11, before God even calls Abraham, it gives that neat biographical detail where 
It said, Abraham set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But he settled in Hebron. So Canaan, as we'll see, is the promised land that God always wanted to give his people. And Abraham went there on his own. This is where I'm going. But the journey proved too hard, too difficult, and he settled, and he was content with it. That's a great reminder of what is probably the most universal human experience. Is deep in our hearts, we want the things that God provides. We want peace with God. We want rest from the worries of this world. We want unity with those who are around us. But the truth is, we can't get there on our own. It's too hard. There are too many things that vie for our attention across the way. But this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel comes to those who are confused, who do not have a home. And he says, come to Jesus, and Jesus will get you all the way there. Jesus will take you to the place that you've perhaps wanted to go, but you can never go on your own. That's the goodness of God. God finds us in our confusion and in our stuckness, and he brings us to Jesus. And Jesus gets us to where we've always wanted to be, which is back to God. And so the rest of Genesis tracks the expansion of Abraham's family. And they grow so big by the end, and now they're in Egypt, and the book closes with God's people in Egypt, and then we now enter Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, the, we see that God's people, the Israelites, have gotten so vast that the Egyptians are scared of them. And so in order to keep them in check, they make them slaves, they subject them to harsh labor. And now we meet Moses in the Exodus. Moses is the man, and so here's this recreation, who is saying, call my people out. I'm going to take my people and says, bring them to my place. I'm going to bring them into their land. And then he says, you're going to also give them my law, where I will rule and be near to them. And so already God's people, God's place, and God's presence in Moses is already being brought back. God's going to bring them out of slavery. He is going to give them his law so that he can dwell with them. And he's going to bring them to the land where he will dwell eternally with them. And here's the problem with this, is that it doesn't really work the way that we thought it was going to work. Moses still can't fully get it done. He's going to bring people out, and we're going to see that in just one moment here. And this is what we're going to see through the rest of Deuteronomy, and something that's important for us because we often have a one-sided view of Christianity. We, see, we understand when it comes to our sin, we, we, we get the allusion to, to Egypt, right? We're in sin. Some, things aren't what we wanted them to be. We need to be saved from that. And so we look to the gospel. We look to God and we say, fix what's broken in my life. And then we get out and we want to do whatever it is we want to do. But redemption calls us out of slavery, but then it calls us to God. It calls us to the place where we get to live with God somewhere. The gospel not only saves us from something, but it's bringing you somewhere. God wants to bring you into a place where you will increasingly be blessed more and more by him as you experience more and more of him. And so this story of kind, of kind of working and kind of not working continues. And so at the end of Exodus and in Leviticus and Numbers, all of them share this, uh, this scene at what is called Mount Sinai, or what Moses calls in this text Mount Horeb. And this is where God has brought his people out of slavery. He is going to bring them to his place and at Mount Horeb, he begins to give them his law. I have brought you out, and now I want you to live as my people. And this is also something really important to understand as we look at Deuteronomy. God didn't find his people and say, here's the law, do it, and then I'll save you. He saved them, 
And then he got after their actions. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel is that you live right and then you're saved. The gospel is you're saved and our response to that saving grace is that we would want more and more of this goodness of God. And that's something that we'll see blown up in Deuteronomy that is beautiful, that we have a God who gives us rules that the nations themselves wish they had. And so here we have already the Old Testament as a book of grace. Maybe you've heard this false dichotomy that the Old Testament is a covenant of works and the New Testament is a covenant of grace, but already we see God's grace. It was grace that God brought people out of Egypt, not because they earned it. It was grace that God was going to give them the land, not because they were worthy. And then the book of Numbers is really important to the book of Deuteronomy because the first three chapters of Deuteronomy really summarize the whole scope of Numbers. In Numbers, it starts at Sinai and it ends right where Deuteronomy begins. And so in there, you see God's people who have been brought out, God's people who at Sinai have been given God's law, and now God's people who begin the journey to get into God's place. God's people, God's place, God's presence. It all looks like it's going to work swimmingly. And this is where Deuteronomy picks up, right here, doorstep of the promised land. And this is where Deuteronomy begins in verses 1 through 5. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, so that's Mount Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in the Ashtaroth and in the Edrei, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses took to explain this law. And that's the context that we come to Deuteronomy in. They have moved from Sinai, they've come up through, there's all these geographical markers, which you don't have to know a map, all you have to know is they're here. They are at the place, they're at the doorway of the promised land, just waiting to get in. Finally, 700 years after God went to this nomad wanderer Abraham, the people, the presence, and the place have almost come back together. Eden's almost here again. It's almost going to work. And this is where we begin to see more and more of what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy. And after that long intro, this is where we see our first point, is that Deuteronomy is a sermon. The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon. And this might seem like an odd and pointless observation, but it's actually really important when it comes to how we understand the book of Deuteronomy. And I'll see this emphasis. You read it, right? In verse 1, it says, these are the words Moses spoke. In verse 4, it said, Moses spoke all the Lord had given him in commandment. In verse 5, it says, Moses undertook to explain this law. Moses' goal in the book of Deuteronomy was to take the whole teachings of God and to apply it to the lives of God's people so that they would be able to cross that simple river, so that they would be able to go into the promised land as God had designed it. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy has really no narrative parts in it. It's really just one big sermon and in that sermon, Moses uses examples and narrates Israel's history. But the book itself is basically one giant sermon given in three or four, depending on how you look at it, different parts. Moses wants to teach God's people, God's word, that's what we just saw, so that the people might be willing and 
able to obey God himself. Deuteronomy, this is often how we look at it, Deuteronomy did not exist just to record Israel's history and Israel's law. Deuteronomy exists to change people. Moses wanted this sermon to have a real effect on its hearers that would change the way they interact with each other and change the way they interact with God. And this is why we at Sovereign Hope are so passionate about preaching too. And this is why God's church throughout the ages have held to preaching his word. We preach not simply because we want you to know God's word. Paul says if all our goal is to just learn propositional statements in scripture, to know the history of Israel, to know theological truths about God, what's going to happen is you're going to be puffed up. You're going to look big as a balloon, but there's really no substance to you. Instead, we preach, and God's church has preached God's word because God's word reveals to us God himself. This is where we encounter, not propositions, but it's where we encounter a person. And when we encounter God in Scripture, you can't help but be changed by Him. It changes your life. Truth exists to get us to the person of truth, who is God Himself. The preaching of God's Word is intended to expose us to God. And this legacy, which started back in Deuteronomy, continued even a thousand years later, 1,400 years later, to where Paul was planting churches... And look at how the centrality is still here in 2 Timothy 4, verses uh, 1 through 4. I charge you, so Paul's writing to Timothy here, how do we plant a church? How do we lead a church? How does the church endure this hard world? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So for Moses, for Paul in 2 Timothy, and for us today, we preach God's word because we know That if God's word is not clear in our mind, it's going to change how we act. We are going to hear other people say other things, and it's going to draw us away from the person of God and from the worship of God. Preaching roots us in the central thing of Scripture. And the central thing of Scripture is the God who has covenanted to redeem his people so that they might know him. We preach God's word, and we need to be preached Two, because we need to help others see the beauty of this God. We need to see the wonderful things that he has done to save us, and it needs to be a weekly reminder for us. Because Moses knew these people had already heard at bits and pieces the law. Some of them were even at Sinai and heard the law. He had already written at this point, though the people might not have had it, he had already written Numbers and Leviticus. There were laws there, but now Moses says, you need to hear it again, and I need to explain it fully. All that God has said, I am now going to teach it to you. You need to hear it from me, your leader. In this moment, this defining moment of Israel's history, you need to hear it again. You need to hear it seriously. You need to hear it because I love you. And so he gives this sermon, and it's a really weird sermon. I have a book in my office called Sermons That Shaped America. And it's a collection of sermons that uh, theologians and pastors throughout the years look back and say, these sermons have had an indelible effect on who we are as a country. And it even starts with one preached by John Cotton in the 1600s. 
pilgrims are leaving his church in London, and he's saying, when you get to the colonies, do not neglect the glory of God. This new world is not about your glory. It's about the glory of God. And then we get into the 1700s, and there's a sermon from Jonathan Edwards, which set the tone for the Great Awakening. We have sermons from preachers pleading, begging their Christian churches to treat African Americans as equal dignity created by God himself. There's even a sermon from Tim Keller five days after 9-11 in Manhattan as he preached to his church who just watched two towers fall on their city through acts of hate. Sermons are powerful. And this sermon is the mother of all those sermons. It is probably the most shaping sermon in the history of Scripture. And I mean that because it's this sermon, this law that Moses is giving here that leads the psalmist hundreds of years later in Psalm 119 verse 97 to say, oh, how I love your law. That's kind of an opposite reaction we have today when we look at God's law, right? How I love your Torah. How I love all of your teachings. He's talking about this Torah, this book of the law. This book of the law is the same book that in 2 Chronicles 34, King Josiah finds. And it leads to great reform to a sinful Israel. It's also the book that Ezra, when the people of Israel, after they've been punished and held in captivity in Babylon, they come back to the land, and when they're seeking to establish the right worship of God, this is the book that Ezra preaches to them. We're actually like participating in biblical history in real time here. This is a, this is a book that has been preached to God's people throughout the ages to call God's people back to God. It's that important. It's so important that when Jesus was tempted by the devil, when he speaks back to the devil and he quotes scripture, all three scriptures that he spoke back to the devil are all three scriptures from the book of Deuteronomy. This book of Deuteronomy shapes Paul's theology and is the bedrock of his doctrine of justification by faith in the book of Romans. This is a powerful book. This is a book we should not neglect. But it's powerful again in an odd way. Because when you, if you just sit down and read through it, take you about an hour, if you sit down and read it, it'll seem like these are Moses' three points, which are points I've never learned to make in seminary. You failed, you're going to fail, and I'm going to die. Catch you later. That's, that's what he does. You failed, you're going to fail, I'm going to die. But in the midst of all that failure... Moses is also pulling up as the missing piece the faithfulness of God. At every turn, Moses is saying, but God is going to be gracious. But God is going to do all that God said he was going to do. But God is going to make a difference. Despite everything that goes wrong, the book of Deuteronomy shows that God is going to be more and more gracious. And we almost hear Paul in the book of, of Romans, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And this story is really a story, this sermon is a sermon on failure and faithfulness. That's what Moses wanted his people to see in this defining moment. It's what God wants you to see in your moment today. This book is a sermon which warms our hearts to the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. This book is a sermon, and we need to hear it. We need to hear God's word. There is no generation who will ever exist who does not need God's word. But it's also a sermon, this is the second point, it's a sermon about our need. A sermon about our need. There's a song by Weezer called Undone, and the chorus of it goes like this. If you want to destroy my sweater, 
Just hold on to this thread as I walk away. And in this first chapter, the whole scope of Deuteronomy chapter 1 is Moses holding the thread of an excited Israel sweater while they dance around and quickly find themselves to be undone. It's this slow unfolding process of exposing Israel's nakedness. And we already saw this back in the verses we just read. Look with me at the first three verses. These are, these are parts of the Bible we often always ignore, right? And it doesn't help when we have headings in our Bible that say introduction and things like that. But don't ignore this, okay? This is an important part of God's word. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suv, between Paran and Tophel, Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. It was 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all the Lord had given him in commandment to them. So did you begin to, did you see where Moses started pulling on the thread there? Because he said, it is an 11-day walk from Horeb, Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea. 11 days. But how many years has it been since they got out of Egypt? Forty years. <laughs> Either Moses is a completely incompetent tour guide, or something went drastically wrong between the Exodus and the Promised Land. Something that should have taken no more than two weeks has taken 40 years. It's like the Russell Street Bridge Project. <laughs> it's never going to happen. And finally, they're here. But what Moses wants them to see is like, what went wrong? What happened in this 40-year time stretch that is so significant that we didn't just march straight up to the promised land? And in this chapter, he describes two important scenes. In, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, he describes the scene at Horeb or at Mount Sinai. And in uh, verses 19 through 46, he describes the scene at Kadesh Barnea. Kind of those are the two big important locations of his words to Israel in chapter 1. And in each of those, we begin to see things going more and more wrong. It starts more subtly in this first part. And so look at this scene at Horeb in verses 6 through 18. So again, this is at Horeb. This is out at Mount Sinai. All of this is happening only a couple months after they were brought out of Egypt. It says this. This is what Moses said. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Right? God has given the law. Now you have the law. Let's go. Turn and take your journey. Go to the hill country of the Amorites and to their neighbors in the Arabah. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Negev, by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. So this is Moses saying to, to the people, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your father, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he promised you. There's almost a but in verse 12. But how can I bear myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing you've spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, 
and set them as heads over you. So you see this system here, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien, that's the foreigner, who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. And I, command you, and I commanded you at this time all the things that you should do. And so here Moses wants us to just, we just want to see two things in this big chunk of scripture in the first part at Horeb. He wants you to see first that the promise of God's immeasurable good is right at hand. God says, let's go. The land is here, the land I promised to your forefathers. Go to it. I am going to give it to you. I am going to be faithful. You are going to inherit it. The land of promise is about to be the land of reality. But then we begin to see not only a problem, but we begin or a promise, but we begin to see a problem. And it's small, I don't know if we noticed it, but it was there. God's people have God's law, they're going to God's place, but Moses needs help. Why? Two reasons. The people are so big, they've grown so vast, that Moses himself can't effectively lead them in all places. But also, not only were the people large in number, but we saw in verse 12 that they were also a people of great strife. At this point, we're two to three months out of Egypt, out of the most miserable conditions you could ever imagine, and the people are already bickering. Moses is already sick of, are we there yet? Stop touching me. I'm not touching you. You're touching me. It's all over. All they can do is fight. They're always bitter. They're always whining. And Moses says, your strife is too big for me. So Moses makes a plan with the people. He says, you appoint your best and brightest, and I will teach them to judge righteously. They will judge impartially. And if they can't do it, you'll come to me, and I'll solve it for you as God's prophet. And the people look at Moses, and they say, this is a good idea. We should do this. They democratically agree to be subjected to God's righteous judgment throughout the nation. This is what we need. This is what we want you to do to us. Judge us according to God's law. Let's do it. This is for our good. Let's go. So what's the problem? God's promises here. God's leader is limited but still willing to lead by God's law. The people are zealous to be ruled by righteous judgment. They're all in Moses' corner. What could go wrong? There's a laugh. <laughs> and so now we see the scene where they're moving from Horeb, and they're going to go to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is door number one to the Promised Land. It is right on the southern border of the Promised Land. And let's read what happens between Horeb, which is down to the southwest, going up to the northeast. Look at what happens in verses 19 through 25. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites. As the Lord our God commanded us, we came to Kadesh Barnea. So location change. We were at Horeb, now we're at Kadesh Barnea. And I, that's Moses, said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession as the Lord your God, your father, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land. So they're sending spies into the promised land. That they may explore the land for us 
and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me. There's this great agreement. The people and the leader are of one accord. And I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up to the hill country, and they came to the valley of Eskel, and they spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us, and brought, word, and brought us word again and said, It is good land that the Lord our God is giving to us. So here we hear Moses' preaching really hit a stride. He is like emotionally recounting what's going on. God's promises are at hand. He's saying, let's do it. Let's go have it. And we as a third party reading this are like, it seems like they're actually going to do it. Everything's in place. God's promises, God's prophet, his prophet's pleading. He's giving these commands, take it, go, do not be afraid. And we're like, this is, this is going to be a shorter book than God initially planned. But something goes wrong again. And we see this, this is going to be a long passage, so read with me, but notice how everything that's seemingly in place almost immediately falls apart. Verses 26 through 46. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where are we going up? It's like whatever they just heard shook them so much, they almost forgot where they're going. Where are we going? Our brothers, that's the spies, have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there, Then I said to you, do not be in dread or fear of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt, before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents, in fire by night and in clouds by day, to show you by what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, Moses says, the Lord was angry on your account, and he said, you shall not go in there. Joshua, son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children today who have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in them, in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you... Turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. There's a reverse exodus happening here. Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies." So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. 
Then the Amorites who lived in the hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. Things didn't go well. They get to the doorway of the promised land. It is right there, the beautiful triumvirate, God's people, God's place, and God's presence. And they rebel. Why? Because the spies said they've got tall walls and big people. And this is the danger of trying to follow God at a farmer's market. You've all been to the farmer's market. We just had the last one, right? I think it's done now for the season. You go there and there's booths selling produce. And they're all seemingly selling the same produce. And if you're anything like me, you just look at whichever one is cheaper. And that's the good one. And you go. And you take it. And here these spies, they brought back, we see in numbers, grapes. They brought back fruit. And I said, this is good land. Look at this fruit that God is giving to you. We should go and get more of this fruit. But... If all God is, is another booth in a greater market, we're not going to have the motivation we need to purchase those. Because we're going to look at that fruit, and we're going to say, that fruit comes with tall people and big walls. I'm going to go with the fruit that looks the same, but is a little less costly. I'm going to not incur that cost. This is like the people of Israel at this point. They're sitting here at Kadesh Barnea, and they're like, there are giant people, big walls, great cities, but we got grapes. And they're like, well, we have grapes, and none of those things. But see, the danger is when we see that the compelling motivation to follow God is in the fruits of God instead of God himself. You see, the fruits were good, but the fruits were never meant to be understood outside of God's land, outside of God's presence. And when it comes to following Christianity, we often get distracted because we love community here at the church. But there will come a point in your life when people are sinning against you or you have sinned against others where community is far less costly in the world. And if all you're looking for is that fruit and not the presence which belongs to it, you'll never be willing to make sacrifices for it. It will seem utterly foolish to you. And of those 12 slaves, God opened the eyes of two, Caleb and Joshua, who said, this fruit is a foretaste of what God is calling us to in himself. This is the land where he's going to dwell with us. Let's go, Israel. Let's take the promises. He has never failed us, and he will not fail us yet. But Israel rebelled. And they had so many safeguards. They had collectively agreed to be ruled by God's law. They were all of one mind. They had collectively just recited the promises of God. They were of one promise. And Moses, their great prophet leader, had just exhorted them to not be afraid. They were all of one strength. And then rebellion. Rebellion, Moses defined in verse 32 as unbelief and in verse 45 as disobedience. And Moses pleads, he says, remember Egypt. Remember the most powerful nation in the world where you did not have a sword to your name and God brought you out. 
Remember the ten plagues. Remember the Red Sea. Remember in the wilderness where God carried you like a son to where you are right now. Do you remember that God? And the people say, functionally, no. I just see walls and tall people. And we get a little more explanation of why Moses is giving this sermon at this time in verses 24 through 40 where God gives judgment on this people. Why is Moses preaching this message to this people at this time? Because those who rebelled at Kadesh Barnea have all died out. That was God's judgment to this faithless people. In Numbers 14, we read of this promise. The spies went into the land for 40 days and came back. And God says to them, you're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years, one for every day, and not one of you will inherit the promised land. The children that you thought were going to be prey, they're going to be the ones who get to praise me there. They are going to get the ones, they're going to be the ones who get the fruit of the land. Everyone who Moses is talking to here at Deuteronomy was either younger than 20 years old at the time of the Exodus or the great majority had never actually seen it. And so he is writing to these people, reminding them of things they haven't yet seen so that they would understand that God is recreating his people. He's saying, this is a new people. May this people be like Caleb, who wholly was faithful to God, who is a new people, not faithless, but faithful. Faithful people will inherit the land. How serious was this rebellion? Moses says, I'm not going to make it in the land. Their fearless, faithful prophet leader, the one whom Exodus 33 says God spoke to as a friend, he doesn't have what it takes. Joshua, the other faithful spy, is going to be the one who does it. God's recreating his faithful people. He's recreating a faithful leader. And the people are kind of shook with this. So much so, there's this completely tragic scene at the end where all of a sudden the people become frantic. And they're like, let's do it. We don't want this. Let's go. Let's go fight. Look, God, we're going. We're fighting against the Amorites, just like you told us to. And they're so disillusioned at this point that they actually think that continually resisting God and his prophet is actually the way to please God and his prophet. You see what they said? We are going up just as you commanded us. And then God commands them, stop. And they go. You see, they weren't interested at all at obeying God's command. They were interested in themselves. And they go and they suffer great loss because they think that they know better than God. And there are times in our lives where we need to see what Moses is saying here, that there's a difference between saying you want to obey God and obeying God. You can be running in a completely opposite direction and keep telling yourself that you're obeying God's commands. But obedience is not something we say. Obedience is something we do. And because they didn't obey, they suffered great loss. You see, good preaching doesn't just inform our mind, but it affects our hearts. Do you think the people listening to this were maybe affected emotionally by what Moses is saying? Because it really is an odd way to start an encouraging sermon, isn't it? Next week, we're going to look, and Moses is going to be a little more optimistic. He's going to talk about God's faithfulness. But what he wants them to see here is he wants them to see that something needs to be done about their sin. Something needs to change. 
These people didn't see the ten plagues. They didn't see the Red Sea. They didn't see Mount Horeb on fire with the glory of God. And the people who saw that, they didn't have enough faith. How much harder will it be for these people who have never seen those signs? If this were you, can imagine the hopelessness that this might impart to you? If they didn't believe and obey, how am I going to believe and obey? And maybe you're met with that hopelessness in life today where you look at all the things that God is calling you to do and it's nothing but a feeling of hopelessness. How could I ever do that? But this is where we see the beauty of this book. Deuteronomy is not only a sermon about our need, but it's a sermon about our need and how God is going to change us. That's the last point, how God is going to change us. You see, we have the same rebellion as the people of Israel. We're cut from the same cloth. Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, without a commitment to obedience, without being like Caleb, holy, obeying God, you will not see God. The land is for the faithful. The land is for the obedient. You see, for the believer, there's something far greater to be lived for than the promised land and something far greater to fear than death in the wilderness. There is heaven to be gained and hell to be found. And when we look at ourselves, don't we see similar moments of failure? Moments where small concessions, seemingly insignificant, soon blow up into a full-on rebellion against God. And we're kind of like, how did we get here? What happened? We need our sin to be dealt with if we want to get into the promised land of eternity. And Moses himself, the great prophet, he couldn't help these people with their sin. He himself was disqualified by his own sin. What hope do you have for me? I am not a prophet like Moses was a prophet. John Piper is not a prophet like Moses was a prophet. Jonathan Edwards was not a prophet like Moses was a prophet. How are we who have not seen the Red Sea, who don't have a prophet of God, who have no miracle-working wonder in our world, how are we to obey? What hope do we have? That's why we need Deuteronomy. Because we have all the hope in the world. That's the message Moses is preaching to these people 3,500 years, 30, 3, years ago, and it's what he's preaching to you today. Because in all of Moses' failings, look at what happens in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You see, Moses was just a placeholder. Moses is going to say a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 18 that there's going to be another prophet, another one like Moses who's going to come, and he's going to get God's people into God's place. 
You see, at its heart, the author of Hebrews just told us, the book of Deuteronomy is all about the gospel. When Moses is giving these laws, pleading with these people to be externally conformed to God's holiness, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that one day, despite your faithlessness, despite your failings, one day God himself will circumcise your heart. He will change your affections. And it's with this language that we look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ." Moses says something needs to change. If you want to get into the promised land, something needs to change. And here comes Paul, centuries later, and he says, Jesus has changed it. Jesus has rendered our hearts faithful. Paul is preaching Christ straight from Deuteronomy. Church, we have a problem of rebellion and faithlessness. And God has promised to be faithful even to those rebels if those rebels are faithful unto Christ. Paul is calling us, or Moses is calling us, just as Paul did two weeks ago in the book of Ephesians, to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We cannot do it apart from Jesus. That story of the faithless battle at the end is just a story of our lives. We can't do it without God. We can't do it apart from obedience to God. You could try to white-knuckle your way through life. You could try to just try harder and perform better. But I want you to notice the two competing realities that Moses is offering you in this text. This as a case study for your own life. Look at Deuteronomy 1, 29 through 31. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. The Lord himself will fight for you. And to not be found, to not have faith in this text, is to place yourself in this one. Verse 41. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. You see, recognizing sin is only half the problem. What are you going to do with it? We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go into the hill country. Why would you think that you can do something that God himself has promised to do for you? Why would you see your sin and then turn and all of a sudden you go from a sinner to a superhero? Where God says, I will do it. Not apart from your obedience, 
But I will empower your obedience so that you will go and you will have success if only you will trust and obey me. And you see, this passage shows that through the judgment in the wilderness years, God is recreating his people so that they can be faithful. They need not fear what their parents feared. And when we look to Jesus, it is Jesus who has been punished in the wilderness for us. Jesus took all of our sin so that he would circumcise our hearts so that we can be faithful even when times are fearful. It is Jesus and his love for us that empowers us to make change that can really get us what we want because it gets us to God. It gets us all the way back to God where everything we ever want is given to us wholly and abundantly and one day it will be physically and eternally. Will you turn to the one who fights himself? Or will you continue to fight on your own? That's the reality and the duality of Deuteronomy. And that's what Jesus is offering you today. To come to him and find your rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is this contrast in Deuteronomy of faithful and faithless, of blessing and curses, of your word and our word, of your might and our might. Lord, I pray that in all of this we see Jesus as the bridge between it. We cannot be the people you've called us to be on our own, and that is exactly why you sent us Jesus. Jesus brings us to God in his grace and in his power, and then he empowers us to live for him in all circumstances. Lord, we pray that the story of our failure is defined by the story of your faithfulness. You have been faithful to us in Jesus Christ. Help us lay down our arms from fighting against you and instead help us pick them up to fight with you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.